mystery of the cross of Jesus Christ and atonement has been a major discussion within church history for nearly 2,000 years. These discussions have all been merely attempts at explaining the nature of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In theology, these attempts are labeled as theories and there have been many throughout church history. It's important here to note we are not saved by theories, but rather Jesus. Yet our understanding of Christ's death has implications on how we view the relationship between God and man, and more importantly, the character and nature of the Father. My aim is not to argue one particular view over another, only to show the historical diversity on the subject and to suggest the possibility that our modern view of the atonement in the West, when examined thoroughly, presents several problems. One of the earliest views of the atonement is called the ransom theory. In this view, the understanding is that Jesus, through his death, became a ransom for humanity by giving his own life over to deliver us from slavery to sin, death, and corruption. Different writers saw this view play out different ways, some as a ransom payment to the devil, others including the Eastern Orthodox Church would say a ransom to death itself. The common theme here is that Adam sold humanity over to the devil in the fall. Therefore, our freedom from bondage would require a ransom paid to the devil, death, by God himself. This, in many ways, is similar to another view called Christus Victor. Lutheran theologian Gustav Aulen published a book in 1931 called Christus Victor, tracing atonement theories through church history beginning with the early church fathers all the way through the Protestant Reformation. The Christus Victor theory, according to Allen, was the classic view and predominant view for the first thousand years of church history, and supported by nearly every church father. Allen argues theologians have incorrectly labeled the early church fathers as holding a ransom theory of atonement. According to Allen, these church fathers didn't associate the death of Jesus as a payment to the devil, but rather a representation of liberation from the bondage of sin, death, and the devil. Allen states in his book, quote, Its central theme is the idea of the atonement as a divine conflict and victory. Christ, Christus Victor, fights against and triumphs over the evil powers of the world, the tyrants under which mankind is in bondage and suffering, and in him God reconciles the world to himself. End of quote. This view, labeled as Christus Victor, understood the death of Jesus as a decisive victory over evil through a rescue mission by God as opposed to a transaction. It was in the 11th century Anselm of Canterbury developed what is now known as the Satisfaction Theory. This view understands humanity owing a debt not to Satan, but to God. Therefore, God himself has been dishonored by man's sin and requires a perfect sacrifice to restore honor lost. Anselm spoke out against the possibility that God could ever owe the devil an idea presented in the Ransom Theory. Therefore, Anselm taught that if there was any debt at all, it was a debt unto God. This view proposes that Jesus in his death satisfies God as a payment for the sins of Adam, which had robbed him of the honor that he was due. 
It is important here to point out that for the first time in over 1,000 years of church history, a view of the atonement would be developed with the supposition that God was the beneficiary of a transaction at the cross rather than man. In other words, Jesus was satisfying God's demands of justice as opposed to rescuing humanity. Anselm's view would shift the focus from sin, death, and the devil as the primary problem of mankind, claiming it was God himself who was dishonored by man's injustice and therefore was in need of satisfaction. It would be Anselm's view which the Protestant reformers would take one step further and argue that it was not God's honor that was assaulted, it was God's moral law that was transgressed by man. This view, called Penal Substitutionary Atonement Theory, or PSA, derives from the understanding that divine forgiveness must satisfy divine justice. That is, that God is not willing or able to simply forgive sin without first requiring a satisfactory punishment for it. This view was popularized by the Reformers, particularly in the West, during the Great Awakenings, and is still the current common view held by Protestants in the West. I believe there are aspects of each of these views that are valuable to how we see the cross. At the same time, the teachings of PSA have inadvertently cast shadows upon the character and nature of the Father. The early church fathers spoke of the cross in terms of exchange, debt, ransom, and substitution. They spoke of sin, death, and corruption as the problem of mankind. Here's an example from Athanasius of Alexandria in the 4th century from his work titled On the Incarnation of the Word. Quote, it was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God in mankind should disappear, either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. As then the creatures whom he had created were on the road to ruin, what then was God being good to do? Was he to let corruption and death have their way with them? In that case, what was the use of having made them in the beginning? Surely it would have been better never to have been created at all than having been created to be neglected and perish. And besides that, such indifference to the ruin of his own work before his very eyes would argue not goodness in God, but limitation. It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by corruption, because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself. End of quote. Notice here for Athanasius, it would be unthinkable for God to turn his back on his own creation. The fall of Adam is met with the same eternal passion and love that chose man in himself before the foundation of the world. It was during the Protestant Reformation that the doctrine of PSA began to develop. To be fair, there are some aspects of this doctrine that show up throughout the writings of church history, particularly substitution. Yet clearly there was a shift during the Reformation period. The fear of death and the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, are no match for the anger and wrath of God according to the doctrine of PSA. This common understanding suggests our greatest need for deliverance is not from sin or the devil, but God himself. It places the Father as the accuser of the brethren. The cross becomes the place where God's anger towards man's sin was poured out on Jesus as a substitution for the punishment we deserve. 
This understanding presents God, the Father, as one who is incapable of forgiveness until justice is achieved through punishment. God's acceptance of his own creation is prohibited until his anger and wrath are appeased. Here are a few quotes from one of the most famous sermons in North American history given in 1741 by Jonathan Edwards. Quote, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are ten thousand times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. End of quote. Though Edward's view of God's disposition towards man progressed over the course of his life and work, and this particular quote may not be his best moment, it does clearly communicate some of the early portraits of God within the Protestant tradition. Here are a few quotes from John Calvin. Quote, To this answer, that as God hates sin, we are also hated by him, as far as we are sinners. But as in his secret counsel he chooses us into the body of Christ, he ceases to hate us. But restoration to favor is unknown to us until we attain it by faith. Hence, with regard to us, we are always enemies until the death of Christ interposes in order to propitiate God. We have shown already that we cannot be loved by God, but by means of his only Son. In fact, we fight against him. God then must of necessity look upon us in the person of his own son, or else he is bound to hate us and abhor us. End of quote. It can be very easy to overlook some of the implications of this particular theory of God when it is woven into the fabric of our denominational teaching. My hope is to look at these implications over a series of blogs individually, throwing them against the wall to see which ones stick and which ones do not. Asking questions like, who killed Jesus according to the New Testament writers? Why did Jesus and New Testament writers link his death to the Passover as opposed to the Day of Atonement? How did Jesus describe the nature of the Father prior to the cross? Did God forsake Jesus or was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself? Why is it that the only goat in the Levitical sacrificial system in which the sins of the people are transferred to happens to be the only animal that is not sacrificed. Is God too holy to look upon sin? If so, how was he capable to fellowship with sinners without sacrifice, since Scripture says he was fully God in the body of Jesus? If God is incapable of forgiveness until the sacrifice of Jesus, how did Jesus forgive sins prior to the cross? If God cannot forgive sin without payment... Is that by definition forgiveness? These are all important questions and have serious implications on how we view our relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
I will end with a quote from Gregory Nazianzen, a 4th century archbishop and theologian. Quote, To whom was that blood offered that was shed for us, and why was it shed? I mean the precious and famous blood of our God and high priest and sacrifice. We were detained in bondage by the evil one, sold under sin, and receiving pleasure in exchange for wickedness. Now, since a ransom belongs only to him who holds in bondage, I ask to whom was this offered, and for what cause? If to the evil one, fie upon the outrage. If the robber receives ransom, not only from God, but a ransom which consists of God himself, and has such an illustrious payment for his tyranny, a payment for whose sake it would have been right for him to have left us alone altogether." But if to the Father, I ask first, how? For it was not by him that we were being oppressed. And next, on what principle did the blood of his only begotten Son delight the Father, who would not receive even Isaac when he was being offered by his Father, but changed the sacrifice, putting a ram in the place of the human victim? Is it not evident that the Father accepts him, but neither asked for him nor demanded him? But on account of the Incarnation, and because humanity must be sanctified by the humanity of God, that he might deliver us himself and overcome the tyrant and draw us to himself by the mediation of his Son. End of quote.